0: Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive.
1: Welcome everybody to the Family Biz Show. My name is Michael Columbus from Family Wealth and Legacy here in Rochester, New York, where we actually have a little bit of sun. It's one of the seven days we're allotted. Um, I want to welcome everybody today. We are going to be talking about the psychological and practical pitfalls in family business transitions. And we have two incredible guests with us today, Renee Fellman and Stephen Rolfe. Welcome both of you.
2: Thank, thank you, Michael.
1: Thank you very much. Glad that you are here. Um, as we dive into this conversation, and before we dive into this conversation, rather, uh, what one of the traditions that we have on the show is we just ask people to tell us about your journey. How did you end up where you know you, you're engaged with family businesses? Um, you know, 20 years ago, that wasn't even a career path. Today, there, there's actually courses and whatnot at universities that are teaching, you know, some of those, you know, uh, frameworks and whatnot. So, Renee, why don't you kick us off? Tell us about what you do and uh, about your journey.
2: <laughs> so, uh, my journey, I think, by any definition, is circuit has been circuitous. So my undergraduate degree from Northwestern is in history. After I graduated, I taught eighth grade for four years. Trust me, Michael, if you can handle eighth graders, you can handle anything. Uh, (laughs) At the ripe old age of 30, uh, I was the first woman elected to the city council of Beaverton, Oregon. Two years later at 32, I was elected mayor. Uh, In the same election, however, there was a charter change, and the position to which I had been elected was abolished. The form of government was changed, and I didn't want the new position, so I ended up running the campaign for the guy who was the first to be elected. Uh, Then I went back to get my MBA, and while I was in my MBA program, there was a woman in the program whose... The guy she was living with led hospital turnarounds, and as soon as I heard about turnarounds, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I mean, think about it. Anyone who teaches eighth grade is a challenge junkie, right? Um, and so, uh, when I um, after my after I got out of my program. Uh, At that time, you know, you were talking about family business not being a thing turnarounds weren't really a thing this is 1986. And so I told people I'm looking for a company that needs an organizer and they had seen me organize everything from the PTC rummage sale to the neighborhood effort to fight city hall to running political campaigns. So it only took me three months to get my first project. And actually my first three clients were family-owned businesses. Um, So at this point, I've been leading turnaround since 1986. I was the first woman to win the turnaround of the year award from the International Turnaround Management Association for my turnaround of a publicly held, but family controlled uh, company, the third largest supplier of uh, culture media in North America. And a about two thirds of my clients have been family-owned businesses. I've been uh, an outside consultant for 12, and actually served as interim CEO for 11 family-owned businesses. Nice. So I am a doctor to sick businesses. The thing, the thing I want you to understand is, I'm never on the preventive side. I can tell you, this. so I can tell you the problems that have been caused by transition mistakes.
0: Awesome. Thank you for sharing and welcome. Stephen. So my my background is equally circuitous, but uh, a a different circuit. Um, I'm trained originally, um, I'm trained as a physician, a psychiatrist, and a psychoanalyst. And earlier in my career, I worked with eighth graders uh, as well. Really? I, well, I was the director of an inpatient psychiatric facility for children for uh, many years and and founded a number of inpatient uh, children's uh, units and adolescent units. And um, it was really partly by working uh, in the psychiatric facility that um, I became interested in organizations, how organizations work, how organizations function, because of what is a, a time of uh, downsizing um, uh, because uh, managed care had come into healthcare care. Um, we were faced with a situation where we were having shorter and shorter lengths of stays with more and more difficult uh, patients and um, it uh, created a lot of challenges for the for the staff who were very committed and had worked in um, a situation of you know long-term care with with chronically ill children to overnight having to um, treat kids for very brief lengths of stay and with limited resources it really became a challenge as to how to keep up the um, staff morale. Um, So I became very interested in um, organizational work. Um, On the other side, um, I had a private practice, and I was seeing a lot of um, entrepreneurs, uh, CEOs, and family business owners in my uh, private practice. And um, more and more was noticing, especially with the family business owners, how I would bring the um, uh, families um, of the business owners into um, therapy because I was trained as a a family therapist as well. And um, more and more, I began to see that a lot of the problems that the uh, business owners were coming to see me with um, were uh, connected to their businesses and were inseparable from their businesses. So I became more interested in family businesses from from that perspective, and decided to pursue some advanced training in family business advising through Family Firm Institute. And um, uh, from from that time um, forward, I um, developed a practice that consists of uh, consulting uh, and advising CEOs entrepreneurs and uh, family business owners on anything really having to do with psychological aspects of management, leadership, um, addressing um, uh, conflict um, and any um, leadership challenges they have, many of which have uh, to do with uh, transitions and succession planning. I've also um, focused um, my practice on working with leaders who are facing a personal life crisis or health crisis and how that's impacting their organizations. Great, we're gonna, I mean, today we're talking about the pitfalls and some
1: of the mistakes that families make and that's where we're gonna spend the bulk of our time. But Stephen, you said something that I just wanna make
2: sure,
1: I'd like you to share when you were in private practice, dealing with entrepreneurs and family business owners if you had to if you had to categorize the top three or four things that were common for people to come in and want to talk about how would you how would you group those what would you say those are
0: I would say um, they have to do with um, anxiety over being in a leadership position you know, no one, um, no one's prepared uh, to take on uh, a uh, a leadership position um, to the degree to which uh, they have to lead. And you can you can educate people um, and you can try to prepare, but until they're actually in the role of having the kind of responsibility uh, that um, that leaders have. Whether a family business or non family business, um, you know, the phrase it's lonely at the top it really rings true, and it rings true to a lot of people. Um, so I see, um, um, I would say that um, you see primarily anxiety, it's manifest in terms of anxiety, uncertainty, uh, self doubt. Uh, how did I get here? Am I really supposed to be here? Uh, there's sometimes feelings of imposture. That's very yeah. common feeling, um, and um, uh, that's on the, um, the CEO side of the business. I would say on the with the entrepreneurs, um, there's certainly anxiety, but you also see frequently depression, um, and. Um, because so many startups fail, such a high percentage fail. We of course only hear and see the successes. There's there's tremendous pressure, tremendous sure. pressure on um, the entrepreneur to succeed, and um, and and uh, tremendous stress associated with that, as well as as depressive feelings when it looks like it really may. Uh, may not work out. Sure. So you were dealing in the VUCA world long before it was a thing, huh? Right.
1: <laughs> Renee, why don't, let, why don't you kick us off talking about these transition mistakes or pitfalls? You are the transition person. You're that the, the rescue person. So you've seen these mistakes and, and and the pitfalls. Would you mind just, you know, let's and 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 steve i want to say thank you because the reason why i asked you for that and i apologize I, i'm i miss saying this is that i want people to know that they're not alone those those things are very common anxiety and the pressure and dealing with uncertainty that's normal part of being in a family business or being an entrepreneur or being a ceo and so i just wanted to I wanted to make that real. I wanted to make that I wanted to normalize that a little bit for people and just to let them know that they're not alone. The same thing when it comes to these these transition pitfalls and whatnot, you've seen so many of these, Renee, that I want people to be aware of
0: what's happening.
2: Well, in terms of mistakes,, um... Where to start. So Steve had actually in our correspondence had sent an email saying one of the problems is that people just don't plan for it at all. I actually yesterday was just interviewed for a turnaround project. The CEO of the company, his parents died within a year of each other and at age 18 with no college and no training became the CEO this guy has no idea about how to run a company. He happens to be extremely talented on the product side. So obviously that's one. I've had several situations like that where there was just zero planning. What if something happens to whoever's running the company? Yeah, and And, and on that note, it's so
1: important, right? Because we always think it's gonna happen to somebody else. it's never going to happen to me it's only happens you know to other people so yeah so
2: number one is lack of planning yeah you know planning failing to plan is planning to fail
1: okay
2: um another is i would say picking the wrong successor um and i'd actually be interesting to interested in knowing what steve thinks about this i have had several situations in which the son of the founder ends up running the company and the sons are under-assertive. My theory, in some cases I've known the father and some not, my theory about that has been that you have a very assertive father and the sons do this to please them. Sometimes they don't really want to do it. in the in, remember, I only see the failures, I don't see the successes, and often they really don't have the skill set. Another is, um, I it really has to do well. Another thing that happens is sometimes the founder picks a successor. I had a third generation owned packaging company, and uh the founder decided that his granddaughter should run the company. She always assumed she would be running the company. When I got there, she was not, actually no one was running the company when I got there. But again, just because she was cute and lively, didn't mean that she would be the right person to run the company. And so one of the issues I think is that companies do not um, step back to think about what are the qualifications to run a company, and if we, I can, we can talk about that a little more. Um, another is that people have gotten bad advice from their advisors. Um, I in um, you know what I throw into that one, Renee, is you don't know what
1: you don't know. And so we trusted these advisors to get us to where we are, but those advisors may not be able to get us where we need to go.
2: Yeah. And so for example, in 2016, um, I had a second generation family on business and the founder uh, had two sons and one of them was running the company. Neither son was qualified nor able really to run the company. And he told me, he said, I knew I was making a mistake but everybody told me I had to turn over the reins, turn over the reins. Well, it may be true that it was time to turn over the reins but probably to some uh, non-family member. That's another thing I've seen. Another one is there is, um, a lot of the companies never changed the way they did things. The third generation family-owned business I described, they were doing things exactly the way the grandfather had done them. And you know what? Things had changed. Um, So
1: those are, those are. Great. Yeah, those are some of the things. Yeah, no, those are are wonderful. And you know, it's funny, I was just talking with a family that's coming on the show in a future episode and they talked about their ability to change through the years dramatically and that that was what made them successful so they're going into their fifth generation um, yeah they just touched a member of the fifth generation just started working there and you know if they were still trying to do what the great great grandfather did he was in the recycling business of recycling rags guess what that's not an industry that even exists any longer. And so, you know, and Renee, I think you'll appreciate this. We, we always talk with clients to say, when's the last time you did a, a SWOT analysis with the mini max? And they're like, what the heck is that? I mean, well, SWOT, this, you know, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. But then you have to, on top of doing the SWOT, you do the mini max. How do I minimize the threats? And weaknesses and how do I maximize the opportunities and strengths? And if you can if you're focused on those pieces, right, that it probably helps to go back to like what you said, Steve. I'm dealing with the VUCA, I'm dealing with uncertainty, I'm dealing with change. But if I have that, if I'm thinking forward, I might be able to see things in the you know coming to at me that I might not have thought about without, an exercise like a SWOT analysis. And I'm sure you probably take them to the nth degree, right?
2: My process is actually a little different, but that's a separate topic.
1: (laughs) A-OK. So Steve, when you talk about pitfalls and the mistakes that
0: families make during transitions, is there anything you'd like to add to what Renee was saying? Yeah, I, I think I think Renee uh, outlined a lot of the significant uh, pitfalls fairly well. I would drill down on some of them, but first I want to underline her her main uh, comment of uh, failure to plan uh, is planning to fail. Yeah. I don't know where that phrase originally came from, but it's certainly it's certainly appropriate. And I think a lot of the um, a lot of the difficulties really fall under that that rubric, really, as well as um, a failure or a a problem with um, asking the difficult questions and and facing the difficult questions um, in terms of um, what does the transition or what does a succession plan really, really entail? And what does it really mean? And what does it really mean um, to To the family, Um, so you know when we talk about when we talk about um, you know planning for these transitions, we talk about both contingency plans and succession plans, and of course the contingency plan was what you were referring to before, Michael. A sudden, a sudden change, um, you know, uh, when Jamie Diamond gets hit by the bus, which. Of course, actually happened as we know recently when he, um, I think he had a, a wow. aortic aneurysm um, that he um, miraculously survived, um, but he had an entire plan in place, right? Uh, and and it it um, you know exactly what was going to happen all during the time that 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 he was ill, um, and so. But, but few family businesses in particular do have those, um, they, they don't have those plans in place. And um, they, they, so the, the kinds of stories that Renee uh, was mentioning uh, about um, children having to take over a business suddenly, even the children who are in the businesses, um, they, they're not really prepared um they're they're prepared to work in the business but they're not prepared to run the business even if they've been in the business for you know uh, many years um so um yeah you know along along with that i mean there are many things involved with this question about planning um one of course one but maybe the most important is um who does the planning um, and how, how is how is that how does that process occur? Uh, because that gets into the whole question about governance, and the whole question about um, about having uh, a board of directors, a meaningful board of directors or board of advisors, and um, how much do uh, does the founder. Um, uh, use a board of advisors and and rely on a board of advisors, particularly when there's a question about, you know, what the succession, what the contingency or succession uh, plan should be. And one, one example, um, I, th- I think that fits with what Renee was, was, was bringing up. And when you talk about the question about a successor, um, yes, sometimes there's pressure to pick a child who um, may not really want to be in the business right and they feel this tremendous uh, sense of obligation um, and um you know have have difficulty saying that they you know don't want to do it they want to go in another direction they want to do something different i mean that's that's a dynamic that you see frequently Another dynamic that you see, and this may be actually more common in non-family businesses, but I think it it also occurs in family businesses. Uh, a kind of confirmation uh, um, uh, bias, in the sense that the 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 CEO uh, either consciously or unconsciously uh, picks someone just like him or herself. Right. Right where the business, as you were saying, Michael, the business, the needs of the business may really be quite different for what's necessary in the future. But because of that, um, that bias of picking someone to, to, to resemble oneself. And that's where, of course, the the advisory board or- well,
1: Steve, I'm gonna cut you off for just a second because we're gonna talk about those tools and techniques in a second. Sure. And some of the ways to get out there, but what you started to allude to are some of the typical causes of these mistakes that Renee brought out. Renee, you know, why don't you jump in and just, you know, if you can add to what else do you see as some of the other the common mistakes or the causes, you know? And maybe then we'll we'll go back and forth on how to prevent them.
2: No, it, it's good. No, it's uh, frankly as I'm talking, I it's just been delightful. And I wanna thank you. I, I really wouldn't have known Steve had you not invited us to be here. And his perspectives, um, I guess, have enhanced some of the things that I have seen and felt. And so it's been really interesting for me and I hope the people attending will, will have the same experience. As he was talking, I guess, when you're talking about uh, trying to pick a successor who's just like the founder I think sometimes when people uh, are getting ready to pick the successor, they see the problems of the founder and so they try to pick somebody who's different instead of stepping back and thinking, what do we need? (laughs) Um, So that's one. Another issue that I have seen is uh, that sometimes the culture of the family becomes the culture of the business. And of course, uh, depending on whether it's a a family that's super nice or a family that's super combative, you know, that can have, but for example, in my turnaround of the year, these people were just, there is no one nicer than this family. And um, I mean, they had operations in the US and Canada and Um, If you were a nice person, you could work at the company. (laughs) There was that fit fit their culture. There was absolutely no accountability.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: No, no confrontation. And so that's a that's another thing. I've also as we're, you know, we've been talking. I've been thinking about how I'm sort of focusing on what's different what the problems are in family businesses, as opposed to non-family businesses. Some years ago, I had an employee-owned company, and I thought, well, this will be great. You know, everyone will be on the same track. It'll be so much easier than a family business. Wrong. Mm -hmm. Every employee is a member of the family. But you don't have the issue of the culture of the family becoming the culture of the of the business and and that's a difference. Another thing when we're talking about failing to plan is planning to fail and this actually goes across all companies not one of my clients has had a business plan. Really? I have had, I have had 38 separate clients not one has had a plan. Um, you know, I've worked with companies with revenues ranging from a million a year to to over 200 million a year. Not one has had a business plan. I don't think they know what a business plan is. And we we may want to talk about that later. But that's that's 100%. another issue. Another is the the new CEO or president comes in, and no, there is no established way of evaluating that person's performance. Mm-hmm. And um, that can be an issue with, a, if it is a family member or even if it is uh, not, even if it's a non-family member CEO.
1: Great, what, you know, we, so we talk about, I think you know, what Steve, what you alluded to and Renee, I'm just kind of taking some of the things that you said and Steve, I think at the end of the day that a lot of the mistakes and tell me you know feel free to take my words and mesh them however you need them to be but uh, a lot of the mistakes and the causes probably come from the internal biases the psychological side of what we're thinking would you would you agree with that that you've seen some things like that or how would you expand upon that maybe make make that make that come out better <laughs>
0: Well, you know, it, look, it, it, it may be that the um, everyone can't do everything. And it may be that the personality characteristics that lead uh, someone to, you know, found and run a company are, um, are different from the, you know, from, from, from the personality characteristics that that lead one to say, well, it's, um, you know, that they want to become a, a, essentially a mentor or an educator or want to pr- think about, you know, spend time thinking about what's going, going to, you know, happen with this business or what's going to happen uh, in, in the next generation. Or they may be people that are prone towards action. Uh, rather than uh, reflection, you know, and they may be focused, you know, much more on um, what what to do with the business next. They don't really want to think too much about the the messiness of the interpersonal challenges um, that are associated with 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 planning for, you know, for the the next generation, and um, you know. Uh, would like to just leave that for someone else or for another day. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times I think.
2: Go ahead, Renee. Well, you you brought up the issue of unconscious bias, and I, S- Steve, will know much more about the whys, <laughs> or and maybe how to fix it. But um, we all see things through the lens of our DNA and our personal experiences. Mm -hmm. And that's true of everyone. And so one of the issues that I have seen and sometimes actually say in family businesses is we're all sitting in the same theater, but we're seeing a different movie. (laughs) And I think that is another source of problems in terms of unconscious bias Personally, I, uh, I wish that there would be more attention focused on this in business in general. Several years ago, I read Cheryl Sandberg's book, and she was really talking about women in business. But she told this, but she uh, cited a case study that was done in the Harvard Business School where they, I, I, I want to give you an exact, I hope you'll, sorry if I go this way, it's a little love. No, I love it. Okay, so um, she, there was a case study and they divided this MBA class into two groups. Both groups had men and women in them. They had two identical case studies, except in one case study, the manager was a woman. In the other case study, the manager was a male. And both groups, Both groups, even though the facts were the same, both groups saw the men and the woman differently. And I like to think of myself as being very objective, right? So fast forward a few months later, I'm at a meeting, a a business meeting, and I'm sitting next to a board member and uh, this woman uh, from some Canadian company. And I spend all my time talking to him. Guess who the CEO of the company is? The woman who I didn't even talk to so we're, i think that we are we all have that and don't realize it and yeah. it's a bigger factor than people realize i think
1: i you know, i think that's really 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 important and I, and steve you started to talk about you know the boards or the advisory board earlier and i and i think that that's kind of if you had to you know between the two of you what is the role of the board in your opinions, for the families,
0: um, I want—I do want to get to that, Michael. Very important, but I just—I I just don't want to leave this thought um, because I think it's important to mention back back to your previous question. Um, you know, it's very difficult to—I um, mean, think about the difficulty of running and being in a family business. It is a real, I, I don't, I think it's important not to lose sight of, I, you know, there are clearly tremendous advantages uh, to, to having a family business. And we talk about patient capital and not having to manage quarter to quarter and that, that kind of thing. Um, but it is a real challenge and there are very few families that can pull it off. So we we should we should recognize that, and we should should realize that you know when we when when we think about you know what are uh, because it takes an enormous amount of, of strength, a certain kind of strength, and certain kind of ability um, uh, to do this. Um, but at the same time, there there are these family businesses or that that stay in business for the wrong reason, right? They stay in business together to keep the family together what we were talking about before and not allow um, uh, autonomy right Um, i see this frequently um, i do um, some coaching of um, uh, at at the wharton school with um, young um, you know mbas who are coming from legacy family businesses And uh, they are always in turmoil about whether they're going to use their MBA education to return to the um, to the legacy business or go off on their own and do um, something quite different. Yeah, you know, you're saying that. I just want to make a point to the audience real quick. I
1: think it's really important. I have found not all, but many coaches or advisors to family business they really really push that legacy piece and put a lot i think there's added pressure coming from the outside and there's enough pressure coming from the inside to maintain that family business to not be the generation that loses it and and there's there's this piece there that's really tough and so i make sure and i you know want people to realize whether you're first, second, third, 10th generation, it doesn't matter. Be willing to sell the business at any, at any time. The, the, there comes a point where it's that the, the business isn't what's important, it's the family that's important. So make sure that you're you're balancing that family and business aspect. And sometimes, you know, we always talk about the the, the business that's a lifestyle business that's run by the family. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're making decisions based on the family. Ooh, junior got divorced. He's going to need some extra money to help pay alimony versus, you know, this other thought of the business is just, it's so big. It's complicated. There's 250 employees in here now, and we really don't have anybody there to do it. And we don't want to bring somebody from the outside. Great. Then now it's time to think about selling and that. It can also be considered success, but you just have to get your mind wrapped around it. Is that
0: yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. And when we talk about pitfalls, um that's probably that that's one of the biggest pitfalls, right? And it uh, um, you know, it's said that the biggest loss of um value um across um you know across the country is um the failure to sell a business at the right time right oh and if you add Wait, say one, that say one, that one more time cuz i want people to hear that the 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 biggest loss of value if you if you add up the loss of value it points to businesses that don't sell at the right time and You know, if you think about yellow cab and what, how much those uh, medallions used to be worth before Uber came along, Um, you know. So, so, and and I also agree, Michael, with what you said before that the I have to say that the field of um, family business advising um, was part of that problem because. the focus has been so much on uh, succession planning and planning for the next generation, as if that's what absolutely should happen for, for you know, and that defines a successful transition. And uh, a Canadian, uh, I think his name's Tom Deans, wrote a book called yeah. um, "Every Everyone's Family Business. It's a widely read book. And he really makes the point, the point that you were making that, that um, it's really important for uh, that. that It's not the family business that's important to transition to the next generation, but think of it more like you're a business family and what that business is or, or the knowledge that you're transferring so that the next generation can do something different as far as business um you know may is how to to define the success and so for him of course he was the fourth generation and and his business was consulting to family businesses and that was the 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 iteration of of how his family business uh, uh evolved so I think very important i i appreciate that and as a quick side
1: note for those of you that um uh, attend our book clubs. Tom Dean's book is the one that we're doing in September. So thank you. <laughs> okay. Good. Uh, highly recommend that book as well. Um, I, I just find this conversation can go in so many different directions, you know, and I really appreciate what, what both of you bring to the table. I want to start talking about some of the tools and some of the, you know, it, Renee, one of the things that you said is there's no accountability. And so I would love, I mean, you know, to me, that's one of those tools. How do you implement accountability inside of an organization? What are some of the things that you do to make ensure those
0: things?
2: So um, the first thing goes back to what I was talking about, having a plan. The, first of all, when I get into these situations it's like my patients, I'm a doctor my patients are in the emergency room. That means I've got to diagnose the problem and begin treatment immediately. And I'm not talking about months, I'm talking about days. I mean, sometimes they have no cash. They can't get vendors to ship with them. Most of them are in dire straits. And so um, the first thing I do is I do um, interview the key managers, but I also get permission Uh, It's actually in my engagement letter that I can um, conduct an absolutely confidential employee survey. Um, And that means unless an employee says, yes, you can share what I'm saying, only Renee knows. And I find out all sorts of stuff that is incredibly valuable. Then, and this usually happens either the first or second Saturday that I'm there, I bring together the management team and we put, we go through the financial statements line item by line item and we ask how can we get more cash, increase revenues and decrease costs. And the advantage of, first of all, most of the time, these people don't even, they almost always, they know there's a big problem, but they don't know, they haven't seen the numbers. And so as we go through, it's possible to develop a plan that is very realistic because let's say the VP of marketing and sales says, we could sell blah, 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 this much of this product and manufacturing says you know i wish we could but we just don't have the capacity but we could make more of these could you sell those so i just use that as an example when every when all of the key managers are sitting in the room together the cross the interrelationships among the various functions of the company come into play out of that comes a plan so it's a real plan and it's in writing. It's not a tome. It's bullet points. It has a chart. This comes to the accountability piece that shows who, you know, an Excel spreadsheet who is responsible for doing what when. And of I'm course, they are, they've made it. this. They've made this. These commitments in front of all their fellow managers, and. Um, Then financial projections that are the numeric representation of the plan. This really becomes the foundation of a system for ensuring accountability. For me or whoever the CEO, when I'm actually serving as CEO or whoever the CEO is, it's a way of holding the managers accountable. For the board, it gives them a way to hold me, if I'm running the company or the C, whoever's running the CEO, to see whether or not they're on track. So that's part of it.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna pause for just a second because I want to make sure that people understand that. One of the ways to make sure that Renee's not knocking on your door and that you're calling Renee up is to put a business plan together. And the way that a business plan is put together is getting the leadership team across silos so that we're not siloed and we're not myopic and we're seeing all things and getting a plan in place, folks. It's really, really not that difficult whether you wanna just do it yourself, then read the book Scaling Up or read Good to Great or read some of these other books that are out there to learn how to do these things. But if not, in the absence of that, if you're, if you're typically not comfortable doing that, then bring in a business coach to help you get a plan in place. And Renee, the other thing that you said that I, I just, I like these points, that, that financial statement, if you're not looking at your cash conversion cycle and looking at ways that you can shorten duration times, that you can move inventory faster, not hold as much, get things off of the, you know, it, it, you know, shorten that the amount of cash, shorten the time that it takes for cash to run through your business, cash sucks growth. And, and it really is the number one thing. What do they say? Uh, revenue is um vanity profit is sanity but cash is king or queen so thank you renee
2: yeah i actually see it so much. so the the thing about the plan that i would say is you've got to have the right people and that means that the people who if you're talking about establishing accountability it's important to have people who have the right skill set. And one of the biggest mistakes that I have seen, and I've ended up having to replace people, is that often when companies are hiring, they look for experience instead of results. I'll give you an example. So I started at a new client in dire straits, and the CEO said, we have a great new CFO. He has experience in turnarounds. I said, that's great. Tell me about him. Well, he went to company A. I said, well, how are they doing? Oh, they went out of business. Then then he went to company B. I said, well, and how are they doing? Oh, they went out of business. Well, you will not be surprised to learn that this guy was one of the first people I let go. He couldn't even get financial statements out. And this, you know, this was a sizable company right so part of it part of it is ha- another part of a sta- accountability is you've got to have the right people
1: yep right and, people right seats doing the right things
2: yeah another piece is and i was thinking about this as you were talking about cash and cash conversion cycle and financial management is in fact critical no doubt about it but in my experience what appear to be financial problems are often really operational problems. And so looking at the people and the processes and the systems can make a and fixing those can make a huge difference in the bottom line. And we definitely don't have time to get into that today. Right. So then and the other piece though, in terms of ac- accountability, um and the thing I see missing often is it is critical for companies to think about what are the, literally to list what are the critical functions in our company? And have we assigned a specific person? Have we given, is it in somebody's job description that that person has the responsibility and the authority to do that job? I had an F, uh, my, really my turnaround of the year was FDA regulated. They made culture media. They were having product contamination problems. They had dings from the FDA. So one of the first things I did was, and this company had a beautiful organization chart. I sat down with the director of quality assurance and the director of governmental affairs. I said, which one of you is in charge of FDA compliance? Which one do you <laughs> think was in charge? Neither. Neither one it wasn't in anyone's job description
0: right so that
2: is another really important piece oh. and then, but then last but not least when you've got this plan then the i think that i think you asked before what's the job of the board in my view any company the job of the board of directors is to hold the ceo accountable that's so. it that's
1: it yeah. i love it yeah and then the the simplified version of what you what you said about the process. And I, I totally agree. The process accountability chart. You 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 everybody's like you said, they they all got their 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 you know the org chart, but where is the process accountability chart? How do we know who's, you know, doing those the things inside of a company so that we're not missing important processes? That's yeah. super.
2: Yeah, and I, I guess sort of on a related, note it would be interesting to know what Steve thinks about this. Remember, I only work with troubled companies. So I don't, in my experience, I would say only about 20% of the people actually get operations. Yeah. And it's really critical for companies to have people who are strong in operations. Um, and that's another piece I frequently um, see missing
0: love it yeah go ahead steve I, I was going to say well i only work with troubled companies also but i work with yeah. but the troubled companies i work with also have you know many many things that obviously that are going um quite well and that they're doing quite well for sure um and i but i think back to the the issue of the 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 accountability as far as family businesses are concerned because I think that, that introduces, mm-hmm. you know, several significant wrinkles, obviously, and some of which you alluded to, Renee, before, which is that, you know, how do you deal with a problematic family member? Mm-hmm. Um, you can have, you know, we, we talk about best practices and we talk about a family employment policy and things like that, but of course those are only as good as they're um, used. And it's not easy. It's not easy, you know, we you talk about best practices, but it's not easy to always, you know, be able to, to I mean, you do the be, the families, I think they do the best they can really try to hold family members like everyone else accountable in the same way. Um, but it is a, it is a challenge to, to be able to do that and to help sometimes help uh, leaders of family businesses, as well as some of the family uh, who, who's employed to, to recognize, you know, that it may not be the best place for them to be uh, in, the, in the family business. And, the, and, you know, I mean, one, one, um, one small thing that actually not, not so small, but, but just a policy of making sure that, that um, family members work outside the business before mm-hmm. they come into the family business, I think yeah. that's that's a pretty well accepted tenant by you know most people now. But there, there are exceptions to that. You know, there there's definitely exceptions to that, and you know sometimes it has worked out for the better. Really, sometimes um, you know the, the, the that business may not have read the book. Um, but it has actually worked out because it gave a family member, for example, in one situation I'm thinking of, it gave a family member the opportunity to work with, with the founder that they otherwise wouldn't, would not have had as it turned out. So, you, you know, no, none of these things are absolute. But, but in general, obviously, um, in having people work outside the business before they enter the business, and I think most families... Now, most family business, mature family business certainly have that in as part of their um, governance. Sure. You know, you were talking about
1: the MBA students that you've worked with and um, at Wharton. And I just want to, I think that falls perfectly in place. Uh, maybe it was somebody, and I don't know if it was you or Renee talking about the family culture and the business culture. And so I, you know, one of the things that, I try to teach is that family culture should be about the pursuit of happiness, right? For each family member to be happy, for each family member to, you know, obtain their best and, you know, most productive self in in their role that may or may not be in the family business. And so if it's not a tenant, if it's not a culture of the family business. And I know families that I've worked with where the culture is it's almost shamed upon if you're not part of the family business. And and so it's it's changing that culture, just like it's the shame of you're the one that you know didn't help didn't the business sold during your, your tenure, or you weren't able to you know, do the t- transition to the next generation properly. And I think there's just some thinking around these areas not, you know, we're all in America here and it's, you know, what is uh, the pursuit of happiness is, you know, one of the things on the, uh, the, 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 come on, my brain is just doing the declaration of independence, right? And so why not putting that into our families and making a, what is the family's declaration of happiness and culture? I think that's probably an important thing to put together. So, um, what else? We're coming up on the top of the hour, and we can go. You know, go a little bit more. What What do you? You know, through this conversation, is probably notes or things that you said. oh, I don't want to forget about this. What are the What are those things for you that uh, you want to make sure that we don't miss in this conversation?
0: Well, just just to underline what we were saying before about a the the value of. Um, you know, the board and the board of advisors and really getting to the point of professionalizing uh, the family business, it, 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 it should make it a lot easier for the founder um, to um, make some difficult decisions. Now, it's not always easy for the founder to um, want to um, agree to to some of these structures. And sometimes it makes sense and some sometimes it doesn't. But um, I really try to get the founders to the point where they look upon uh transitions and look upon succession planning and try to say, you know, you have to approach this the way you would every other business decision you have ever made. That you really and and not treat it differently and and Um, oftentimes having the, the objectivity of, um, of a sounding of the board of advisors is really, you know, is, is really critical to, to helping, um, to helping uh, founders and CEOs make what are otherwise really, really difficult decisions in terms of who's the right person to succeed. um, And um, whether they do have the, right qualities and qualifications. Um, that's in the realm of management succession. And then there's also the question of ownership succession, which we really, right. which we really haven't talked a lot about in terms of pitfalls, because that, that's another area where um, you know, so many situations, there's so many times where in a desire to be, quote, fair to the children, the um the next generation is saddled with um siblings who you, you know one or two of whom are running the business and the other six of whom are not and that um you know are out of the business completely and that sets up a significant conflict in terms of you know um, liquidity and and dividends and um, what kind of control the um the family members that are not um, not in the business have. Um, so, um, you know, um, I uh, working recently with a with a an entrepreneur with a with a founder, and um, you know, he described what the transition for him was like when he took the business over from his father, and they worked together for many years together seamlessly. And they didn't even have to think about these issues at all. Um, it was completely natural. He was completely prepared. Um, but it was a different world. It was a different situation. The demands of the of the business were obviously very, very different, and the the complexities just were not what they what they are now, from a family as well as a business perspective.
1: Right. Steve, I'm gonna send it over to Renee in just a second, but what because just to wrap up, if people wanted to touch base with you, how do they do that? What's the best way
0: to do that? Um, they can my uh, my website is rolfe, R-O-L-F-E, advisory.com or email me at srolf at rolf advisory. Perfect. Thank you so much. And Renee.
1: I so inter- I want to hear what you, your final wrap up would it would be about all of this. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you both.
2: No oh, thank no it's really, it's really been fun. I I want to follow up. I have many things I could say. You can probably tell I'm pretty, uh, but on the advisor issue, one of my pet peeves is that succession planning and transition planning has been co opted. I think by the attorneys and the accountants. And don't get me wrong. They have important knowledge, which needs to be a part of that process. The reality, however, is that most of those people have never run a business, and I think it is extremely important to have on the planning team people with a variety of skills who see things from a variety of perspectives and definitely people who will tell it like it is when you've got a professional advisor they may be reluctant to alienate their client by saying "Eh, don't do that so that's what i would say in terms of reaching me it would be renefelman.com which is R-E-N-E-E, Fellman, F as in Frank, ellma Perfect. Yeah.
1: Perfect. And yeah. uh, you know what?
2: We're I'll, on LinkedIn for that man. Oh, perfect.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's a perfect way to do it. And I think uh, it's definitely worth checking out Renee, Renee's uh, website. She's got an incredible picture with this gigantic, I think it's a hammer, correct? So it's get a, wrench. Hammer, a wrench. It's a wrench, a giant wrench. wrench. I don't think I've seen a wrench that big ever before. So. I know, it's from a former client. It's, Actually, that's yeah. great. It's, uh, <laughs> it, I, I, it sticks in your mind. Folks, you have been blessed to listen to some really great advice from people that have been in the trenches working with other family businesses today. Stephen, Renee, I just want to say thank you very, very much. This has been a great conversation. I know that there will come a time you know, in the future when I have you both back again, whether it's together or separately, because I know we could do this for probably about four hours without stopping. <laughs> um, and, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. I hope everybody has understood how powerful the messages that you've heard today are. Um, Thank you for joining us. Uh, My name again is Michael Columbus. I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. Um, Join us on our next episode and uh, we look forward to seeing everybody again. Have a great day, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to the family biz show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with the family biz show.
1: The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.